You ought to read biographies. The Bible's full of them. And I was in the evangelist class this morning and mentioned a book, and I thought it'd be worth mentioning to you. Uh, Borden of Yale, William Borden's Life. This would be really pertinent to you. Have any of you read William Borden's Life? Okay. William Borden was the, the son of the Borden Milk family, M- would have been multimillionaire. In fact, he was well-to-do. But he got burdened in, you would have loved this, his parents gave him an around-the-world trip after he graduated from high school. Whew. Yeah, so he went around the world, and as he went around the world, most of it like, wow, I saw the Parthenon, you know, I saw the Colosseum, wow. He saw all that, he was impressed, but what burdened him was the lost in the world. He thought, who's going to reach this world? And he decided to give up all the fortunes and become a missionary. And he thought, where can I go? Where's the most unreached people? And God burdened his heart to reach Muslims in China. And so he was going to study Arabic and learn um, what he could about Islam, go to reach the Muslims in, in China. He went to Yale University when Yale was still teaching the Bible, although it was becoming a mixed bag of believers and unbelievers at that time. Um, he went to Princeton Seminary. Uh, in fact, he grew up at the Moody Church. Dr. R.A. Torrey was his pastor. <laughs> he was uh, ordained to the ministry under Torrey. Fascinating story. But he died at 25 years old. And I hadn't read this since I was in college. I have down the day, it was the year after I traveled with Brother Comfort that I read this. So um, I went back and read it this year. And I tried to remember why would a guy who never actually got to the mission field have a whole book written about his life? It was phenomenal. One of the, one of the kindest compliments I ever heard Brother Comfort say of someone was he's a better Christian than he is a preacher. And I don't think he meant that to be um, disparaging to the preacher. I think he meant that as, you know, he walks with God. And let me tell you this about William Borden. Let me just read a little page from this biography. To him, souls were just as precious in America as across the ocean. And his responsibility was as great for all whom he could reach. His friend, Mr. Hugh Monroe, treasurer of the National Bible Institute, Borden was on the board of that group, said this in his connection, Not a few of us, under the influence of an evangelistic service or some other spiritual tonic, are filled with zeal for the salvation of others. At certain seasons when we've given ourselves specially to prayer, perhaps, and the study of God's Word, we're awakened to a new concern about the spiritual welfare of those around us. But there was nothing spasmodic about Borden's zeal. He had that unique thing, an abiding passion for the souls of men. It was his constant thought. It never seemed absent from his mind. Most of us look for occasions which may afford a suitable opportunity for soul winning and excuse our lack of devotion and diligence because we feel that such an opportunity is not present. We continually hesitate to broach the subject of another salvation lest the occasion should not be favorable. But to Borden, uh, sorry, yet Borden found such opportunities continually. Visiting with his mother, for example, in the home of some relatives, he became concerned about the butler who was drinking heavily. At dinner one evening, when not sober, the butler let some ice cream slip off a plate, almost ruining a Worth gown, Worth capital W. Learning that he had been dismissed, Mrs. Borden mentioned the matter to William. It was not their responsibility, maybe, but the following Sunday, his mother's maid, walking in the direction of the butler's house, heard steps quickly coming up behind her and found William at her side. Melanie, he said, I'm going to inquire about the butler. Couldn't we have prayer together that God will speak to him today? 
So we stopped right there on the street, the maid recalled. Then Mr. Uh, Mr. William went to the house, and the butler truly turned to the Lord that day. A fortnight later, two weeks later, he took pneumonia and died. So here's a multimillionaire visiting relatives. They fire their butler. I'm sure all of you have had that experience, right? Because <laughs> he was drunk on the job. What's Borden think? <laughs> Heathen. Slime. Good thing they got rid of that guy. No, that's not what he thinks. That guy needs Christ. And so he's making haste to the house, and he sees the maid. Now think about this. If you're from a wealthy class, where's the maid? You know, she's like low on the totem pole. You're up at the top. None of that in William Borden. He said, Melanie, would you pray with me? I got to go talk to the butler. Good thing he listened to God's prompting. That butler died two weeks later. William Borden lived his life on soul patrol. May God help us to be like that. I want to preach to you a message about character, about principle. It's a message I've entitled, On Purpose. We're in Daniel chapter 1. Would you go there with me today? Glad to have Dr. Comfort with us. Um, We're glad you're just with anybody right now, brother, hearing how the weekend went last weekend. I'm grateful that you're, you you drove yourself here, I assume. The butler didn't drive you, right? Okay, you got here. Amen. So that was a blessing. I am in evangelism because of Dr. Comfort. Some of you probably know that. I traveled with him in 1987 as an intern, and uh, that's how the Lord opened my eyes to what we're doing, and I, I love what I'm doing. Some people say, you ever get tired of traveling? I get tired in it sometimes just from weariness on the road, but I never get tired of it. I, I love this. I've been, I start my 30th year next year, and uh, man, this is, I still love it. People ask me, what are you going to do in the future? This. <laughs> You know, just this until the Lord comes, or I can't anymore. This, this is what I love, and I'm grateful to do it. Hundreds of years ago, there was a young man who grew up in a culture where his family loved God. He was taught to revere the God of heaven. But one day, another nation came and invaded his homeland. He was taken into captivity along with others, marched off to a foreign land that was completely given over to paganism. Others from his home country were quick to compromise with heathen practices, but not this fellow. In fact, we're told that he purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. His name's Daniel. Lord willing, I want to cover this brief chapter with you, but let me just read the first portion of it. Let me go verses uh, 1 to 8. Would you follow along? I'll just read and stay seated, but try to focus your mind on what is familiar to you, I'm sure. Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. The king spake unto Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel and of the king's seed and of the princes, children in whom was no blemish, but well-favored and skillful in all wisdom and cunning and knowledge, understanding science, and such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. The king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them three years that at the end thereof he might stand before the king, or they might stand before the king. Now among these were the children of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, unto whom the prince of the eunuchs gave names. For he gave to Daniel the name of Belteshazzar, to Hananiah of Shadrach, to Mishael of Meshach, to Azariah of Abednego, But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the prince of the eunuchs 
that he might not defile himself. You know, if you're going to stand for God, it won't happen by accident. If you're going to come to the marriage altar pure one day, it won't happen by accident. If you're going to be in ministry for decades, you won't look back one day and say, wow, I wonder how that happened. I became a pastor. Well, I've been a missionary on this field for 60 years. How'd that happen? It doesn't happen by accident. It only happens on purpose. Remember, I went to a Christian school when I was in ninth grade for the first time. I had grown up in public school. I had grown up in a church that did not preach the Bible. Uh, we went every Sunday to church, but I was not born again until I was 10. Then I didn't attend a, a Bible-preaching New Testament church until I was uh, nearly 15 years old. I was in, fo- uh, in public school wanting to play football. My parents dropped the bombshell announcement. Next year, you guys are going to a Christian school. What is that? Well, that's a school where they teach science, history, math, English, but they also teach the Bible. In fact, they have Bible class daily, and back then we had chapel every day. And so um, you're going to go to Gloucester County Christian School. I said, do they have football? They said, well, we checked. They have sports. They, they have basketball and baseball and soccer. <laughs> soccer? That's for sissies. I've never played soccer, you know. They said, well, you don't have to play soccer, but you are going to the Christian school. So I went to the Christian school, and I will tell you, I went there three days, and God changed my heart. And I even played soccer uh, all four years, found out it wasn't for sissies after I came home with shins bruised up, played basketball, played baseball. But more importantly, God changed my heart. And I thought, okay, this is a great opportunity. I've got, I've got potential here to really catch up from lost time. And I thought, how do you find the kids that are sold out to God? Got to be some here in this Christian school. So, you know, how do you do that? Hi, I'm the new guy. I'm rich. If you love God, would you be my friend? That didn't seem the way you go about it, right? <laughs> so I just thought, well, what I'll do is I'll listen in Bible class. And surely the guy who knows the Bible the best should be the most sold out, right? <laughs> so I thought in my naivety. So there was one guy in the class, and I'm going to change names because I know this gets videoed, and so, you know, I don't want to embarrass any of my classmates, but uh, I'll call him Don. Don was not his real name, but Don seemed to know the Bible really well, and so I started hanging out with him. We played all the sports together and such, and then one day the teacher got called out of our room. It was an emergency phone call, and it was in the midst of a test, and she said, listen, class, you're taking a test. I have this family phone call I've got to take. She said, I don't have anyone to monitor you right now, so you are on your honor, but I will be right back. No sooner had the door shut than Don says, hey, anybody get the answer to number 13? I thought he's cheating. Man, I went to public school with kids that didn't cheat, you know, and that was disappointing. So I kind of backed off on becoming too close to him as, a, as far as a spiritual mentor. There was another class, a guy in the class, I'll call him Jim, and, and Jim seemed to know the Bible, not as well as Don, but he seemed to know it pretty well, and so I started chumming with him a little bit, and then one day we're in the locker room, my coach, Mr. Ham, slipped out of the locker room, and a guy started talking about girls in a way that I knew, it sure wouldn't please the girls, it didn't please God, and I remember Jim was in on it, I said, what are you doing? He said, well, don't you like girls? I said, yeah, but we're not supposed to talk like that. I thought, man, is everybody in this school a hypocrite? And then I thought to myself, why doesn't somebody in this school stand up for God? The Lord worked in my heart, why don't you? Well, God, I'm the new guy. I'm just the rookie here. Did that matter? No, God worked in my heart. It doesn't matter who does what. You stand for right no matter what. I graduated from a class of 13 
By the way, one of my classmates, Joe Zierfus, and that is his real name, Joe Zierfus, um, his dad was our Bible teacher, and Joe would go on to pastor the same church that his dad pastored in New Jersey. Joe and I went to high school together. We went to college together. I just preached a meeting for him. And Joe and I, out of class of 13, we were both called to preach. And, and today, we're still in the ministry. Decades later, he's steady as he was. There was another guy in my class. His name was Dan, real name. And uh, Dan was not saved. And I remember I'd, I'd gotten saved out of um, listening to heavy metal, rock music. And, and that's what this other guy named Dan was. I had given him a cassette tape of a message of a guy who'd been saved out of rock and roll. And I wanted him to hear it. And so uh, I gave it to him. And I didn't see that tape for months and it was graduation night. He comes up to me in his cap and gown. Hey, Tozer, I've got something for you. And he hands me a bag. And I look inside. Here's my cassette tape, all mangled and smashed. And he threw his head back. <laughs> I mean, he laughed like some rock star. And it was kind of creepy. No shock to me when Dan went on to become a drunk and a drug addict. He sat in the same chapels I sat in. In fact, his dad was a deacon in the church. But he rejected the Bible. Now, there were opposite ends of the spectrum. Joe and I were heading to ministry. Dan was heading to hell, and he told us all that. He made that clear. But then there were about, you know, a number of them in our class that they were not opposed to God. I I had Bible studies at my house on Saturdays, on weekends, and uh, I don't know, as many as six to eight students from my class would come sometimes. But, you know, there were a great number of them. They they really were not sold out to God. And I've got to tell you, some of them, there was a set of brothers. One brother died early. In life, his other brother got addicted to drugs. Another guy in my class, his, uh, he and his girlfriend, I found out, were expecting a baby. And this is not a guy I would have ever thought that would happen. I mean, all kinds of, we're class of 13. Listen, here, here's what I realized. And I, I've been to hundreds of Christian schools in my years, both as a college rep and as evangelist, literally hundreds of Christian schools. And I can tell you this, just because you go to a Christian school doesn't mean you're godly. And just because you go to Ambassador Baptist College doesn't mean you're godly. If you're going to stand for God, it never happens by accident. It will only happen on purpose. So what can we learn from Daniel? Let me break it down into four areas with you. So the title, On Purpose, number one, Daniel's portrait. It's in verses one to seven. So we learn in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, to Jerusalem and besieged it. It's commonly believed that was about 607 B.C. I've seen dates of 607, 605, but about 607, about 600 years before Christ was born. And you know this is when the Jews are taken off. This is the first deportation going into captivity, and Daniel's among them. Apparently, he's from a line of royalty. Look at verse 3. The king spake to the master of his eunuchs, a fellow named Ashpenaz, to bring certain of the children of Israel and of the king's seed and of the princes. These were the blue bloods, okay? So Daniel apparently came from a, um, a line with some, some royalty in it. And notice verse 4 says, Children in whom was no blemish, but well-favored, skillful in all wisdom. And it gives us a description. Okay, if you're going to put these guys in the palace, here's what they've got to be like. So we notice his pedigree. A, he was Jewish, but also he's a captive. Do you ever put yourself in the, in the shoes of the, or in the sandals of the characters in the Bible? I mean, imagine, it's, it's believed that these, these early incidents we're reading about took place when Daniel was around 13 years or so. This chapter, it's pretty typically believed he was between 13 and 16 as these events unfolded. Imagine you're a teenager and you're, we got invaded by a foreign power and you're snatched out of America. You're taken to a completely pagan country and you never see your parents again. That's evidently what happened to Daniel. 
So he's pulled out of home. He's taken away. He's Jewish. He's a captive. But then that's his pedigree. Look at his person. What do we know about his person? Well, verse 4, the, the word children is young people. I often say, you know, I have three children. I mean, they're all, well, 12 and above. But my oldest is 26. Middle one's 23. So I say these are my children. I'm not talking about toddlers, but they're my offspring, okay? The word children here is, is young people. They're teenagers. So they're in prime of their physical lives. Not only that, children in whom was no blemish. Um, did any of you ever struggle with acne when you were a kid? I did. I remember I, I had a real terrible time with acne, and one day out of exasperation I said to my mother, it is a good thing we don't live in the days of Helen Keller. Did you ever say something like, your parents are like, What? She said, Rich, what are you talking about? I said, it's a good thing we don't live in the days of Helen Keller. What do you know about Helen Keller? She's blind and deaf, right? She, Mom said, what are you talking about? I, I had really bad acne. I said, if I ever met Helen Keller in person and she reached out to identify me, she might mistake me for a Braille book. That was how bad my acne was. <laughs> I would not have been one of these guys, okay? Children in whom was no blemish. Now, not only did they not have acne, no scars, you know, they weren't missing like half an ear. These were... Girls, if one of these guys had walked by, you might have said, hubba hubba. That's Hebrew. Yeah, handsome guy. They were young people, no blemish, but notice they were well-favored. They were likable. They were likable. They were not awkward. Can you imagine hiring somebody to stand in the king's palace who was awkward? Hi, how's it going? Welcome to the palace. Hope you have a good time. You wouldn't hire somebody like that, would you? How many, how many of you have ever been to the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier? Anybody ever been to the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier? Okay. I mean, those fellows in the Army Rangers, they stand there at full attention. I mean, there is nothing but dignity there. And you think about this. These guys would represent the king. They were sharp. They're young. They're likable. They're handsome. But also, they're intelligent. Notice, skillful in all wisdom, cunning in knowledge, had ability to understand science. You understand science. You've got to be smart. Okay, they're intelligent. Notice this, they had ability to stand in the king's palace, so that's talking about confident, composed and confident, but also whom they might teach the learning in the tongue of the Chaldeans. They were adaptable, adaptable. How many of you know a language other than English? Okay, how many of you grew up speaking a language other than English? Yeah, okay, so Daniel did not grow up speaking Chaldee, but he had to learn it. By the way, think about being forced to learn a language. You, I didn't sign up for this. He didn't sign up for any of this. But amazingly, like Joseph, when he was sold into uh, slavery at Potiphar's house, he poured himself into this. You talk about integrity. Some of us are paid to do jobs, and we don't even pour ourselves into it as wholeheartedly as Joseph and Daniel did into situations that they didn't choose. They were forced into. What a lesson in character. So he's adaptable. That's his person. But I want you to see the letter, see his problem. And look at verses 5 to 7. The king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them three years that at the end thereof they might stand before the king. Okay, the problem, let's start with a diet here. Um, interact with me a little bit. What could be problematic to Daniel about the diet? Anybody got any ideas? Okay, Levitical law. So clean or unclean, right? Unclean food was not like, oh, I dropped my hamburger and now I got dirt all over it. What's the modern word for clean food? It begins with a K. Kosher, yeah. Whether it's from the list of clean or unclean. I mean, dietary laws, that, that seems like such a small thing. 
There's no priest in the palace looking over Daniel. Notice Daniel was a man of integrity in the smallest of details. What else might be a problem about the diet? Idols, yeah, offered to idols. So I wrote down possibly idolatrous diet. Okay, certainly a non-kosher diet, but maybe an idolatrous diet. And then notice not only he gave them... Oh, and by the way, let me pause there. All these other guys that have been brought out of home and forced into slavery, they're probably eating regular slop, whatever they give to slaves. But Daniel and his buddies are on the king's diet. I mean, you might think, like, if you were them, like, wow, well, you know, if we got to suffer in uh, Chaldea here, at least we get this food. We're eating like kings. Daniel says, oh, there's a problem here. Not only that, but the king's wine. What, what could be a problem with that? Yeah. What were you going to say, Judah? Alcoholic, yeah. Uh, so I wrote intoxicating drink. So we have an idolatrous diet, intoxicating drink. Let's go to Proverbs 23 for a minute. Proverbs 23. Now, we know Daniel didn't have all of the Bible, obviously. He had the uh, Torah, uh, the, um, or the Pentateuch, rather. He had the Pentateuch. He would have had the wisdom books, including Proverbs. But obviously, the book of Daniel and anything after that's not been written at that point. I do believe he was prolific in these wisdom books. Take a look at this. Proverbs 23, verse 1. When thou sittest to eat with a ruler, consider diligently what is before thee. Put a knife to thy throat, if thou be a man given to appetite. Be not desirous of his dainties, that's his uh, sweet things, for they are deceitful meat. So in other words, think before you eat. Drop down to the end of the chapter. Look at verse 29. Who hath woe, who hath sorrow, who hath contentions, who hath babbling, who hath wounds without cause, who hath redness of eyes, they that tarry long at the wine, they that go to seek mixed wine. Okay, so notice the description. They have woe and sorrow. They're sad, they're depressed. And alcohol doesn't solve anything, it just worsens it. They're depressed. Notice they have contentions. You ask people in law enforcement, what's the biggest cause behind domestic violence? They'll tell you it's alcohol. Contentions. Who hath babbling? They can't even talk straight. Who hath wounds without cause? Policeman drives up and says, Sir, you're bleeding. I don't even know how that happened. They can't explain how the wound happened. They're out of it. Notice they have redness of eyes. What do we call that? Bloodshot eyes. Who has this? They that tarry long at the wine. They that go to seek mixed wine. Look not thou upon the wine when it's red, when it giveth this color in the cup, when it moveth itself aright. At last it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. Thine eyes should behold strange women. Strange as in stranger, not your wife. Your eyes will behold strange women. Your heart will utter perverse things. Thou shalt be as he that lieth down in the midst of the sea. Or he that lieth upon the top of a mast. Think of that. If you're at the top of a ship's mast, what would it be like? Back and forth. They've stricken me, shalt thou say. I was not sick. They've beaten me and I felt it not. When shall I wake? I'll seek it yet again. He's addicted to it. Interesting. Verse 31 says, don't even look at the wine when it's intoxicating. Don't look at it when it's red, okay? If you have purple grapes and you make grape juice, it's typically purple, but then it turns that reddish color. Leaves its color in the cup, leaves the dregs in the cup. Moves itself aright, okay? It's like carbonation in there. When it's fermented, don't even look at it. Somebody quoted down here, uh, Proverbs 20, verse 1, wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging. Whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Now, you're all going to get the question, well, didn't Jesus turn water into wine? He did. First miracle. Do you think Jesus was having open bar at the wedding of Cain and Galilee? I sure hope you don't come to that conclusion. There are those today who justify beer and Bible studies on the uh, premise that, well, Jesus turned water into wine. 
Look, distillation was not like today. I mean, you drink wine today. Well, many of you remember taking your driver's license test in our, in our culture. Um, what's considered a, an illegal blood alcohol content? Any of you remember that? I know you don't drink, but 0.08. Yeah, so breathe in a little breathalyzer. And do you know in Jesus' day there was no way to breathe in the bag and somebody tell what your blood alcohol was? No, you just gauged it based on influence. And you've seen the little slogan, buzzed driving is drunk driving. You're buzzed, you're drunk, okay? You're being influenced by it. I like what one preacher said. Do you honestly think Jesus served intoxicating wine at the wedding of Cana? He said, look, be like um, Lord's table. What, what was the key of the, of the bread that, was ser- or that is served at the Lord's table? Had to be what? Unleavened. Yeah, no yeast. Do you think the Lord would go to the, to the uh, point of emphasizing unleavened bread and turn around and allow for intoxicating wine? That would be incongruous. That doesn't match up, does it? That would be a contradiction. And so, yes, you had to drink and drink and drink to get drunk. Now, think about this. If you, if you like Dr. Pepper or, let's say, uh, Mountain Dew, okay? In fact, I remember back Mountain Dew Code Red back when I was a young guy. And, and so maybe your youth pastor likes some Mountain Dew, right? So, okay, Adam Valenzuela here. He's my friend. I've known him since he was high school. So he's over at Emmanuel. Let's say, Adam, do you like Mountain Dew? I don't even know. No? Okay, I don't either. So we'll, this will be good. This, we'll pretend Adam likes Mountain Dew. And he's popping open some Mountain Dews, and one day he's got too many, and now Brother Ogle has a problem on his hands. Because Mountain Dew is not meant to dr- make you drunk. I had a girl in study hall. I was teaching at our Christian school in Kansas City. And um, one day she was acting so flighty. And I know girls do that sometimes, right? But this girl, it was exceptionally. F- and uh, so I called her up and said, Melissa, what is going on? <laughs> I don't know. I said, Melissa, get control of yourself. Okay, <laughs> one of these. And I'm trying to figure out why can't this girl get control over herself? And said, Melissa, what did you have for lunch? And she told me. I said, and to drink? She said, Mountain Dew. I said, how many? Five? <laughs> now, normally you don't have to show ID to have Mountain Dew, right? But <laughs> Melissa should have. I said, Melissa, that's your problem. You can't control yourself. You got to stop that. Okay, now, if you had seen Brother Adam, he's got Mountain Dew, you wouldn't think, oh, our youth pastors are drunk. (laughs) Mountain Dew wasn't made to get you drunk, but you could drink it to the point of getting drunk. Okay? My girls and I were at Hobby Lobby one day. No, it was Walmart. We're buying something, and and they said, oh, could you show us your ID, please? Oh, yeah. My girl's like, Dad, what? I said, oh, modeling glue. Like, Dad, we're making crafts. I said, I know, but people get high off that. <gasps> well, we're not going to. I said, you, you're sure right you're not going <laughs> to. They didn't even know, right? But, you know, you sniff that stuff, you can get high. Okay, was modeling glue made to get people high? No, but you can get high off it. Okay, I hope that's a revelation to you. But um, you're not, you were not to drink to be intoxicated. The problem is these pagan kings, they would deliberately get the wine as strong as they could to get drunk. So Daniel says, okay, I got this dilemma. I've got this food that does, violates my dietary laws. I've got this drink that is intoxicating. Oh, let's go back to the text. There's something else. There's an identity dilemma too. So idolatrous diet, intoxicating drink, and an identity dilemma. Notice he changes their names. This is the ultimate cancel culture. They're trying to make everybody the same. So Daniel's name, okay, who's named Daniel or Danielle here? Any Daniel or Danielle here? Okay, and your name means what? God is my judge. I knew that. Mine means powerful ruler. Richard, told you that, Brother Harper and I. I told my wife that. She's like, that's great, honey. Nice. Okay, so, but Daniel means God is my judge. 
named to give homage, homage to God? Well, they changed the name, Belteshazzar. Bel, protect the king. Bel, B-E-L. Bel is mentioned in the Bible, Isaiah 46, 1. Bel stoopeth down. Bel was a pagan god of the Babylonians. So they, the, this is going on in our society. Have you noticed all the changing of definitions? Vaccines don't mean what vaccines once meant. And we've got to change, you know, transgender identities, etc. Beware of a culture that goes at war with its own vocabulary. And um, more for another time. But So they're trying to change all the names. Daniel means God is my judge. Hananiah means whom God is favored. Mishael is the same name as Michael, who is like God or who is equal to God. Azariah means whom Jehovah helps. Okay, they changed those to pagan names. In fact, um, Shadrach, servant of sin, and that's S-I-N, capital, the moon god, sin, sin. Meshach, shadow of the prince. Abednego, servant of Ishtar, a Babylonian goddess. Um, let's see, there was one more. I, no, I guess that was it. Um, and all the, by the way, all those came out of the Rock of Ages study Bible. That is a good resource. I, I toured Rock of Ages in Cleveland, Tennessee a couple years ago, and they gave me a copy of their New Testament. I later sent and got the whole Bible from them. They've got the notes from the New Pilgrim Study Bible in the Rock of Ages. That is a very good resource. I've read it all the way through and um, helpful for what it's worth. So I went ahead and I was looking at these names and thinking, thinking about my childhood. My grandmother was trying to teach us about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I remember saying to her, why do they have those names? She said, what's wrong with those? I said, I can't remember those names. I'm a kid, you know, at the time. Why don't they have names like Jim and Mike and Bob? She's like... <laughs> They, they were Jews. I said, how do you remember? What are their names? She said, shake the bed, make the bed, and in the bed you go. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's how you remember their names. <laughs> well, it worked. I remembered. Now, I want you to think about this. Why do we know Daniel by his Hebrew name, but we know the other three primarily by their Chaldean names? Don't answer yet. We'll see if you can figure out that trivia. Okay, you think on that. All right, so that's Daniel's portrait. Okay, pedigree, person, problem. That's, that's the background. Now we come to number two, Daniel's purpose. Look at verses eight and nine with me. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now, God had brought Daniel into favor and tender love with the prince of the eunuchs. Nothing inappropriate about that love. That's, that's a great respect. The prince of the eunuchs is uh, over all these men. And he, I wrote down Proverbs 16, 7 next to that. When a man's ways please the Lord, he maketh even his enemies to be at peace with him. Proverbs 16, 7. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. That was sure true in Daniel's life. Notice Daniel purposed not to defile himself. The word purpose there. It's like you take a nail and you drive it into a piece of wood. My dad was a general contractor. I did a lot of nailing in my life working for my dad. And the idea was when you set the nail, it's to be fixed. It's not budging. I wonder, do you have any principles in your life that are fixed principles? I wish I'd have known as a junior high kid how to take a stand. I was not yet going to a Christian school. I'd gotten saved at age 10. In 7th and 8th grade, I'm still addicted to rock music. I'm still going to a United Methodist Church, which is not preaching the Bible. I'm a Christian, but I don't know how to live the Christian life. I don't know how to take a stand. And one day, I'm with one of my, some of my uh, classmates. We had a snow day in New Jersey, and, and down the end of our street, there was a hill we called Daredevil Hill. 
I don't know, it's probably 60 feet from top to bottom. The bottom was a big root that stuck out, and you get your sled airborne on that. We were using wooden sleds with the old metal rails. And how many of you have ever done old-fashioned sledding? Anybody ever done it? Okay. So we got a snow day. This is great. And I'm in either seventh or eighth grade. I played football with these guys back then and the Pop Warner. And so we're, we're going out to go sledding, and I'm thinking, man, the sky is beautiful. The snow is fresh. It's going to be awesome. And we're taking our sleds to the top of the hill, and somebody had built a campfire among our group. I thought, oh, this is perfect. And then I walked around and set my sled down, and somebody had a six-pack of beer on the back side of the campfire. We're all seventh and eighth grade. What, whatever your view might be morally of the issue, this is illegal. And so I thought, oh, no, what am I going to do? I know this is going to come up. So I did what any seventh or eighth grader do. I just tried to ignore it, right? So we go sledding, and I thought, I'm not drinking. I knew that. I, I wasn't, you know, I... I didn't know how to live for God. I, I had bad language back then, et cetera, but I knew I wasn't drinking. Well, one of the times we come back up the top of the hill and climbing the hill, that was the hard part, you know, <laughs> steam coming out from around your neck, you're hot. And I remember I said, man, I am hot. And one of the guys said, me too, I'm thirsty. Yeah, and I said, me too. I, I wasn't thinking about the trap. Like, well, let's all have one. And they start popping the tops and passing the beer around. What do you do? I didn't know. I didn't have a youth pastor to teach me. My parents hadn't broached the subject yet. I don't know what I'm going to do. Now, what I'm about to tell you is not how to do this, okay? So they handed one to me. I knew I was not going to drink it. I thought, what do I do? They said, have one, Tozer. And I said, no, I don't, I don't like beer. They said, have you ever had it? I said, well, no. Well, how do you know you don't like it? I said, it smells like rotten barley. They said, that's what it is. <laughs> I said, I don't like it. They said, oh, come on, man, try it. Peer pressure. You ever been there? So I thought, well, if I just kind of plug my tongue so none goes down my throat, I obviously couldn't get drunk, right? So I remember I did this. Oh! I said, that's horrible. And by the way, it was horrible. What, I, I think now, what if I liked it? Thankfully, I didn't like it. I said, that's awful. And one guy says, I'll drink yours, and he did. Well, I didn't know what to say. And I don't want you to be in a position like that. I would later hear a preacher about two years later say, and I wish I'd known this then, if you're ever tempted to do wrong, look at the person and kindly but firmly say, I've given my life to Jesus Christ, and I just can't do that. That's good. That's worth writing down. I've given my life to Jesus Christ, and I just can't do that. In fact, you say, well, Brother Rich, look, the problem in with my my non-church friends, it's, it's with church people. Isn't it a shame when you get tempted by people that should know better? But you could say this to them, I've dedicated my life to the Lord and I just won't do that. I've, de- I've dedicated my life to the Lord and I just won't do that. All afternoon I was convicted about that. We had a good time sledding, but I couldn't help but think, man, I, was, I sold out. I shouldn't even tasted that stuff. And we're walking back across the creek And the Holy Spirit's working in me. Even again, I wasn't in a good church, but I'm thinking I should have said otherwise. And we're walking across, wading across the creek, and I said, guys, I've got to ask you to forgive me for something. I said up there that I didn't drink that beer because I didn't like it. And while that's true, that wasn't the main reason I didn't drink it. I said, look, I don't know if I've ever told you this, but I'm a Christian, and I'm never going to drink. And they looked at me and said, that's cool, Tozer. And nobody ever pressured me to drink after that. Well, I don't know it could be that simple. See, you know, you don't have to curl up your lip and spit fire. Go to, go to the text. What did Daniel do? 
He purposed in his heart not to defile himself. And then notice this. He requested of the prince of the eunuchs so that he might not defile himself. He did not barge in and say, Hey, Ashpenaz, stinking slimeball, get out here, heathen. Let me tell you something, Jack. I am not drinking that wine. Do you understand? I'm a child of God. Is that how he approached it? No. Even though he's forced into servitude, even though he'd have every right to look down his nose on these heathen, he doesn't approach it that way. He requested not to defile himself. Boy, you've, you've got to have the resolve of steel. But then, like Jesus said, you've got to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. I remember hearing the, the excerpt from Billy Sunday preaching against sin. Billy Sunday said, I'm against sin. I'll kick it as long as I got a foot. I'll fight it as long as I got a fist. I'll butt it as long as I got a head. I'll bite it as long as I got a tooth. And then when I'm old and fistless and footless and toothless, I'll gum it till it goes home to perdition and I go home to glory. Why, man? You know, Billy Sunday wasn't messing around with sin. I remember we had an old preacher come to college in chapel one time and he said, young people, you've got to take your foot and stand against the devil. Well, everybody who was sleeping in chapel woke up at that moment. But you know, it made an impact. You, you don't serve God by accident. It's got to be on purpose. And Daniel had a resolve. Proverbs 1, verses 10 to 15 tells us, My son, if sinners entice thee, consent thou not. If they say, come with us, let us lay wait for blood. Let us lurk privily for the innocent without cause. We shall find all precious substance. We shall fill our houses with spoil. Cast in thy lot among us. Let us all have one purse. My son, walk not thou in the way with them. Refrain thy foot from their path. He said, this sounds like a message that ought to be preached to teenagers. Yeah, and you're all going to have that opportunity sometime. But let me tell you something. You can't preach integrity with any power if you don't exercise integrity. And your areas of temptation may be different in the years to come than they were in your past years, but they won't be much different as far as it's lust of flesh, lust of eyes, pride of life. My dad told me when I was called to preach, he said, Rich, I am so excited for you to preach. But he said, I want to warn you, there are three things that take preachers down. Women, money, and pride. And I want you to be aware of that. It would be awful to be in the ministry and then ruin the name of God, the testimony of Christ, because you compromise in some area like that. And I thought about it. Lust of flesh, lust of eyes, pride of life. It's the same battle for anybody. Let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. But, verse 13 says, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful. He will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. You don't have to serve sin. You can serve God. So Ashpenaz is in a quandary here because he really likes Daniel, but pick up in verse 10 now. I want you to see number three is Daniel's proving. Verses 10 to 16, Daniel's proving the prince of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who hath appointed your meat and your drink. Why should he see your faces, your appearances, worse liking than the children which are of your sort? Then shall you make me endanger my head to the king. So in other words, initially he rejects this suggestion. No, I, I can't let you out of this diet. Verse 11, then said Daniel to Melzar. Melzar seems to be the supervisor between Daniel and Ashpenaz. Said to Melzar, whom the prince of the eunuchs said over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Prove thy servants, I beseech thee, ten days. Let them give us pulse to eat and water to drink. Anybody know what pulse is? 
seed-bearing things, okay, like fruits. Get stuff out of the garden. Give us pulse to eat and water to drink. In other words, it isn't going to cost you anything. You already have it available, and it sure will not violate our diet. Just give us pulse and water, verse 13. Then let our countenances, that's our facial expressions, our appearances, let our countenances be looked upon before thee, and the countenance of the children that eat the portion of the king's meat, and as thou seest, deal with thy servants. So he consented to them. He said, yeah, we'll do that. In this matter, he proved them ten days. And at the end of the ten days, well, guess what? Their countenances appeared fairer, healthier, and fatter in flesh than all the children which did eat the portion of the king's meat. Thus Melzar took away the portion of their meat, the wine that they should drink, and gave them pulse. Let me tell you, if you determine to stand for God, you will be tested in that stand for God. You will face a test, but God's faithful. Proverbs 28 gives us all kinds of great reminders about uh, those who stand. Proverbs 28.1, The wicked flee when no man pursueth, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Verse 4, They that forsake the law praise the wicked, but such as keep the law contend with them. And verse 23 tells us, He that rebuketh a man afterwards shall find more favor than he that flattereth with the tongue. Daniel would have known the book of Proverbs. He sure lived the book of Proverbs. But let me finish with this, Daniel's promotion. Look at verses 17 to 21. Daniel's promotion. As for these four children, these young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all learning and wisdom. Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the days, the king had said he should bring them in. Then the prince of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. The king communed with them, and among them all was found none like, well, guess who? What a shock. No shock. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore stood they before the king. In all matters of wisdom and understanding, the king inquired of them. He found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers that were in all his realm. And then we read verse 21. This is interesting. If you were writing a literary work, you would never end with this little historical note like this. And Daniel continued even in the first year of King Cyrus. Well, the Bible wasn't written for literary purposes. I mean, although it is the greatest literature work ever produced. You think, why is that historical note there? Well, think about this. Daniel, at the time... This chapter, he was between ages 13 and 16. At the time, Daniel's a young man. He's under Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian era. After Nebuchadnezzar comes Belshazzar, whose dad, Nabonidus, would die, and Belshazzar takes over. And so he's, uh, he's the second one, and Daniel gets promoted there the night the handwriting's on the wall. He's only second in charge that night, but he's under Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar. Then come the Medes and Persians. He's under... Uh, Darius and Cyrus. Guess what? Under four different kings and two different empires, Daniel was promoted to the second in command beside those kings. Isn't that amazing? When a man's ways please the Lord, he maketh even his enemies to be at peace with him. Daniel was not running for political office. He's like, I could help my people if I could just maneuver myself. You know, vote for me. Daniel wasn't promoting himself at all. All he did was stand for right, and God promoted him. Incredible. I want you to close in Ezekiel. It's the book before. Go to chapter 14 as we finish up. Uh, Let me ask you, have you thought about it? Why do you think we know Daniel by the name Daniel, Hebrew name, but the others by their Babylonian names? Why don't we know them primarily as Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah? Anybody got a thought on that? You don't have to have it right. I just want to know what your thoughts are. I mean, I don't know if I have it right, but I I have a thought. Okay, frequency of mention, that, that's merit, meritus, yes. Meritorious. 
Yeah, I think you're barking up the right tree. So Daniel seems to have lived up to his more than they. Now, let me ask you, were, were Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah as committed to their principles as Daniel was? Yeah, chapter 3, remember? We are not careful to answer thee, O king. Daniel's not even around, apparently, at that point. Some assume he must have been off on government affairs because he would have certainly taken a stand. But even without Daniel there, they stood. Perhaps the reason, I don't know this definitively, perhaps the reason is verse 8 tells us who purposed not to defile himself. Daniel. Initially, one guy took a stand. But that one guy's stand caused others to say, you know, he's right. We shouldn't be doing this. And that provoked them to stand. And by the way, they became the real deal. We know that from chapter 3 and the subsequent actions in their life. Finish in Ezekiel, chapter 14, verses 12 to 14. The word of the Lord came again to me, saying, Son of man, when the land sinneth against me by trespassing grievously, then will I stretch out my hand upon it, will break the staff of the bread thereof, and will send famine upon it. I will cut off man and beast from it. Though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they should deliver but their own souls by their righteousness, saith the Lord God. Okay, God says, when my people sin against me, don't try what Abraham did. Remember with the issue of Lot, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham's dickering with me. Well, Lord, how about if you find 50 righteous, would you spare the city? Yep. 40, Lord? How about 30? 20? Could I hear 10? And the Lord said, if I find 10, I'll spare it, and he didn't even find 10. Okay, he said, don't try that with me, with my own people. If they sin against me, judgment's coming, and I don't care if the three most godly people you can think of are in town. And he names Noah, Daniel, and Job. Now, here's what's significant. Noah died centuries before. So did Job. Noah preached for 120 years, and nobody believed God but his family, but they were spared in the flood. Job, I mean, he had all kinds of sufferings. And, and, and what is it that turns the heart of man against God more than anything else? It's human suffering. But it didn't turn Job against God. Those guys had died centuries before. The irony here is that Daniel was a contemporary of Ezekiel. He lived at the same time. Some believe Daniel was about 35 years old or so when that was written. Who here is in your 30s? Anybody in your 30s? Okay. So, Marco, let me use you as an example. So, let's say Marco lived at the time, and God says, look, if Lattimore or North Carolina sins against me, I don't care if, if uh, Noah, Job, and Marco Piro are in, in uh, Lattimore, I'm going to bring judgment. Can you imagine the honor it would be for Marco to be named in the same breath as Noah and Job? No wonder the songwriter said, dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand alone. Dare to have a purpose for him. Dare to make it known. And he continued that into his old life, his elderly years. When he's thrown in the den of lions, he's believed he's an old man at that time. Never vacillated from his integrity. For you to make an impact on others, you ought to be able to like, say like Paul, follow me even as I follow Christ. If you serve God, it won't be by accident. It'll be on purpose.